understand. Let's see if I've messed this up or if I've got it right. All right, we are live. <clears throat> Thanks, Dan, for bringing to our attention everything that's going on in this church. It's, it's exciting to see the Lord at work. Um, it's good to have calendars full of things that are good for our souls to soak up and enjoy who God is. Um, if you could turn your Bibles with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 1. We are <clears throat> continuing our series in Ezra and Nehemiah today. Um, and just as a, as a way of reminder, um, Ezra and Nehemiah cover the history of Israel, um, of the Israelites returning from, uh, from Babylon, to which they had been exiled, back to Judah, their homeland. Uh, the nation was exiled into Babylon because of its sin of idolatry, and the people had lived there uh, now in Babylon for, for several decades. Last week we learned um, from Pastor Mark about how God moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who had recently conquered Babylon, to, to release, these, um, release these exiles to go back to their homeland and to build the, the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Our text this morning now records the return of those exiles um, to, to the land of Judah. It includes a historical record of, of the goods and the people that returned to Judah. Now there is a temptation when reading a passage like this one. Um, I think reading these, these historical accounts can kind of feel like sitting through a graduation ceremony. You know, it, it takes a long time. There's a ton of names that you don't know, and you don't know why everyone has to be listed. You think, can we just say, good job, everybody, clap once, and then be done and go to the reception. <clears throat> but there's, we, can, we can find it boring. We can find it unimportant or think that it's irrelevant. And that can be our temptation with passages like this one. But like a graduation ceremony, this, this historical record marks a momentous occasion in, in both a, a present progress and a future hope. It is a landmark that celebrates God's faithfulness, that when we read with care and ask the Spirit to open our eyes, we will find that it offers hope for you and for me today. So we're going to learn today that God returns to his dwelling place the resources and the people designed to worship him. And because of this, we can trust this same God to fulfill his promises and provide everything that's necessary for us to glorify him. So we're going to see that through three events. We're going to see vessels restored, exiles returned, and worship resumed. And we're not going to read the entire passage today. It's, we're, it's about 75 verses um, but what we will do is we're going to kind of um, go through a few key texts that are going to help uh, highlight uh, some of the central themes of, of what's going on here. Um, so we'll make application as we go. But before we jump in, let's just pray for God's help. We need it. Um, let's pray for his help as we read his word and hear it, hear it preached today. So Lord, we come to you. We are dependent. Um, we need you to open our eyes, Lord, to, to your word, to the significance of what you have to communicate to us today. Lord, we can, um, we can, we can come at this um, thinking it's just some old historical record that really has no bearing on our lives, um, some old account that doesn't matter to us. But Lord, you put this in Scripture because you had a reason for it to be here. You want to build up your people. You want to give us joy today through your word. And so I pray that that would be the effect, Spirit. I pray that you would open our eyes to see more of who our God is like and I pray that you would give us joy as we do it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, well, let's just jump right in. We're going to start with the first event, which is vessels restored. Uh, let's read in, in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. 5 is just kind of a reminder of where we were, where we were at last week. Ezra 1, 5 and 6. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit, of God, whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. So the Israelites are about to head out of Babylon back to their homeland, Judah. And as they head out, they're supplied with money, with goods, and with livestock from their neighbors. Um, this, this supply from their neighbors was in response to Cyrus's uh, decree back up in verse 4. It says there, let each survivor, so that's talking about the Israelites who were exiled in Babylon, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So this was essentially a tax set by Caesar. I'm not Caesar. <laughs> That's much later. Set by Cyrus. Are you paying attention? <laughs> a tax set by Cyrus uh, to fund both the return of the Israelites to their homeland and the rebuilding of the temple. So this is a government tax. Note, God can use whatever he wants, even taxes, to advance his kingdom. Um, and as I was thinking about this, I was reminded that during the pandemic, um, there was a, a U.S. government program rolled out that was called the uh, Payment Protection Program. Um, whether you agree with whether it was a good idea or not, that's up to you. But what was interesting is it basically was a, it's essentially a grant that helped employers keep their employees on for a few months during uh, the, the crisis of, of the pandemic, especially when you know, a lot of places had to limit the number of customers they were having and you know, access was down. So uh, it existed to help through those economic challenges. The way that it was written was such that in order to have the, the grant and not need to pay it back, you couldn't change someone's pay or let anybody go during the time frame that you got the grant for, which I think was like six months. Well, at the time, I was a paid intern here at the church. And actually, my paid internship was about to end because the funds were running up, which was fine. That was the plan. But with this grant, we were, in order to get the money from the government, which would be like free in one sense to us, we didn't have to pay it back, we had to keep me on as a paid intern <laughs> longer than anticipated. And so not only did it free up funds that were initially uh, earmarked for my internship, it actually then extended my internship by a number of months. So God, in his sovereign plan, even in the middle of a global pandemic, provided not only for, for me and for my family, but also for our local church. God can use anything he wants to advance his kingdom. The Lord can also use whomever he wants to advance his kingdom. Aside from this legally required tax from Cyrus, um, the neighbors also gave free will offerings uh, to the exile, to their exile neighbors. Now remember, these are, these are pagan unbelievers. Um, these, aren't, these aren't worshipers of Yahweh. So it's kind of interesting that, that they're willing to give up more. They're already being taxed, okay? They're saying, you know, their, their king is saying, hey, you have to give money to these exiles as they return to Judah. I'd be like, fine, okay, I guess I have to. I don't want to go to jail. But then there's also free will offerings. I find that interesting because, again, they're not 
God fears, and yet God uses them. He stirs in them uh, to, to, to give above and beyond that which is required of them. I often forget that God works in the hearts of unbelievers for the good of his people. Um, I have a coworker who's, who's an unbeliever, and I have found that I, uh, I had essentially written him off as just someone who was immature. I felt like he lucked out of the position that he got. His brother and his dad work at this place. He got hired. I'm like, he's not a good worker. He doesn't have a good work ethic. And he just seems to, seems to think he can get whatever he wants. <laughs> so I had written him off. Um, honestly, what was in my heart was jealousy because I thought, I worked a lot harder for what you're doing, and I'm still not where you're at. Like, come on, man. So here I am. I'm, I'm sitting in my, uh, my, my cubicle, brewing with jealousy about this, this dude as I've written him off. But then he comes to me on his own initiative and selflessly congratulates me for a recent promotion that he knew I was seeking. And that was incredibly humbling. I, I realized I, I was being the immature one in the situation. Here, here I was being jealous, and he was showing me what selfish, self, sorry, selfless compassion looked like. The Lord used this man who I had thought there was nothing that I was ever going to get from him to teach me a lesson about what humility and, and kindness look like. Um, it's humbling. We must remember that God is working in the hearts of others when we're totally unaware of it or, or when we think they have nothing to offer us. Guys, if, if God, and it's, 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 it's extreme pride if we think that way, and it's extreme pride for me to think that way, because if God can work in our dead hearts who hated him as his enemies and resurrect us and bring us to life and make him love us, then he can work in the hearts of anyone whom he chooses. Whether that's a, 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 a king who worships all sorts of gods or worships no gods, as, as, you know, as the king of Cyrus, you know, he's not, he's not your, your average Israelite. <laughs> or if it's the neighbors who say, no, we, we, we want to give. The, the Lord has somehow stirred in my heart to advance his kingdom. We don't want to cut off uh, opportunities to watch the Lord work through others for the sake of his people. But the Lord isn't done providing for his people here. He also causes even King Cyrus to return the vessels that once belonged in the temple back to Jerusalem. Look at, look at verse 7 with me. It says here, Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. So not only do the Israelites' neighbors uh, supply them with goods for their journey home, the very king of Persia returns the vessels that were once plundered from the temple of God. Guys, this is remarkable. These are, these are the sacred bowls and basins that were once used in reverent worship of Yahweh. Yahweh. They, were, they were devoted for that reason. They were sanctified. They were purified, set apart as holy. They were, I, be, I believe they were atoned with or, or, or sprinkled with blood. They're saying, I'm set apart. This is my use. It wasn't just like some, some nice thing you'd find at um, you know, Renaissance Festival. That looks pretty and looks like it's got some gold filing on it. Cool. No, these are, these are sacred objects, and, and the Israelites knew that. But what happened to these is uh, when Nebuchadnezzar took over Judah, um, a- after having taken it over, later he went in and raided the temple. Um, and he took out all these vessels, and, and not only did he raid them and take them out, which was uh, a, huge, uh, a huge infidelity, he then put them in the house of his gods over in Babylon. So over the last four decades or so, these vessels, which were set apart for the glory of God, are now being used to worship false gods. 
the exact opposite use that they were intended uh, for. To an Israelite, that was an alarming and a sobering thing. It would have been very easy to count these vessels as long gone, to have forgotten about them. They're defiled in temple pagan God, the, the temple of pagan gods. Um, there's, there's no more hope for them. But God has a plan here, even for these temple vessels. In fact, he actually has a promise that he made through Jeremiah decades earlier that he would return even these very vessels back to his holy temple in Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 27, speaking of the temple vessels, which at that point had not yet been taken out of the temple, so Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, had already taken over. Temple vessels are still in the temple. False prophets are saying, they're never going to leave. God's with us. They're going to stay in the temple. But then Jeremiah prophesies this, speaking uh, for God. He says, they, that's the temple vessels, they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then, I will bring them back and restore them to this place. God has a plan and a promise even for bowls, even for basins, even for utensils that, that could be easily forgotten about. As a side note, guys, God keeps every single one of his promises. Even the smallest ones, even the ones that we totally forget about or are totally unaware of, I I didn't know God had promised that to the people of Israel until I studied this. He remembered, though. He had a plan. Why does this matter to God, though? Why is he so concerned with even bringing these, even having a plan beforehand to get these bulls back into the temple that had, otherwise, that had been destroyed? Well, these temple vessels were instruments of worship to God. The whole reason that God supplied the exiles with government taxes and with free will offerings and the temple vessels was to reestablish the worship of Yahweh. That's his purpose. God provided every single thing down to the last silver bowl needed to live in the land in which he was calling his people and to worship him in the temple in which his presence would dwell. What does that mean for us? A believer in Christ, God will provide everything you need to live a life of worship to him. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God's divine power, God has divine power. What does he use it for? God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So for as long as God intends for us to be alive, he is going to provide what we need. If there's something we need for godliness, he's going to grant it to us. So if you need a car for life or godliness, God is going to give you a car. If you need a promotion for life or godliness, God is going to provide you a promotion. If you need a passing grade on that exam that's coming up, God will give you a passing grade. He provided everything for the Israelites down to the very utensils needed for the worship for which he had prescribed. And for as many days as God has destined you to be alive, he is going to provide everything you need. On the flip side, that means that if you don't have something, then you must not need it for life or for godliness. That's easier said than believed. <laughs> I was struggling with that even last night. Josiah decided to be awake for several hours in the middle of the night and wanted to read books and be awake and run around. And I had to just keep wrestling with this verse. 
everything for life and godliness? Like, sleep seems pretty important. <laughs> like, if I'm going to be present at church, if I'm supposed to speak God's word, it seems like some sleep would be useful, Lord. Everything for life and godliness? But to bank on this truth gave me hope. And it's true for you and for me. He does give us everything we need. Not, not most things, everything we need for life and for godliness. So we don't need to worry that we won't have what we need. We don't need to worry when we don't have what we think we need because God knows what we need, and he is going to provide it. So let's trust him to do that. The temple vessels aren't the only thing, thankfully, that God brought up from Babylon. We read in verse 11 that all these, the temple vessels, did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. There is an interesting correlation there. As the instruments of worship are being brought back to Judah, the exiles are being brought back to Judah. I think there's a fair parallel there. The people of God are instruments of worship. Paul compares us uh, two instruments of worship um, in one of his letters. He talks about us as, as, as being uh, uh, offering up living sacrifices. We are instruments of worship to God. So just as God is devoted to bring the, the articles of worship back to his dwelling place, he's devoted to bring the people who are likewise designed, who are likewise set apart to bring him, him glory back to his dwelling place. So that brings us to the second event, which is that the exiles returned. Let's read verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now, what we just read sounds very factual, and it is. It's a historical record. It may seem unexciting, but guys, this is a grand statement. God is fulfilling his promise to his people who were exiled to Babylonia because of their grievous sin, and he's bringing them back to the land of promise. The people go from being captives. Remember it said uh, in verse 1, they came up out of the captivity of those exiles. They were captives in a pagan nation, and now they're going to be landowners. They, they were owned by others where they were at. Now they're going to own their own property. It talks about they go each to his own town. This is their homeland. They have rights to, to own land here. Guys, this is nothing shy of a second exodus, if you will. In, in Exodus, the, the, the people of God were, um, or in Egypt, the people of God were, were captives to their, to their Egyptian uh, slave masters. And, and God brought them miraculously out of that and into a land that he had promised their forefathers. And that's what God is doing here again. He's bringing them back to that land of promise, freeing them from their captors. The next 66 verses are devoted to recounting the company that made the trek from Babylon to Judah. And while we might be tempted to just gloss over this part, there are some key features here um, that this list gives us uh, where we can get insight into the character of God. So we're going to look at three key features of this list. First, note that the people of God are listed according to their descent. So the formula is, you know, um, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 775. 
It's the sons of so-and-so and then a number. Now, that's actually, that's significant, okay? They could have just said, here's how many people came, we're done. <laughs> or Here, here's this tribe, we're done. No, the nation of Israel, Israel um, isn't just a nation in the modern sense. Modern nations, what, what, what defines a modern nation? You have a piece of land, it has borders, you have certain laws you have to abide by, and it's got some rulers in place, maybe a couple other things I'm forgetting. But essentially, that's what a nation is. The nation of Israel, however, was more than that. It was also a family. Uh, that is, they were, remember, they're the nation of Israel. That is, they're the true descendants of Israel. Remember, Israel is not just a nation. It was a person. Israel was also, Israel was the name of Jacob. Um, why is that important? Why is it important that these are the sons of Jacob? Well, God had made promises to Jacob and his descendants. Promises passed down from his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. Listen to the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So Abraham and his descendants were the recipients of God's covenant blessing. Guys, this blessing included a bountiful land uh, flowing with milk and honey. That's a, a prosperous life. It's access to God himself through the priesthood in the temple. The sons in particular were the heirs of the land to which the exiles were returned according to their father's household. So when it mentions sons, it carries the connotation of heirs. Every time this historical record lists the sons of so-and-so, it's a reminder that God is making good on his promise to bless the descendants of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, with whom he made a covenant. So what does that mean for us today? We're not, I don't think many, if any of us, are sons of Jacob, are, are of Jewish descent. Maybe, maybe a few of us are. So what does, that, what does it have to do with us today? Well, for those who place their faith in Christ, we too are heirs of a promise that God has made heirs of God's promised blessing. Rather than being sons of Abraham, we are sons of someone even greater. Paul says in Galatians that in Christ Jesus, you all, or you are all sons of God through faith. That means that for those who put their faith in Christ, we are heirs of God himself. That's who we are sons of. Okay, so imagine, to get our heads wrapped around this, imagine that you are the heir of a billionaire. That would be pretty cool. Maybe they own a private space industry, all right? There's a couple of them out there, okay? You're the heir of this billionaire, and this billionaire has promised to, to bequeath to you an amazing fortune with the car you want and the house you want, with where you want to live. I mean, all, all access to all, any wealth that you could possibly imagine to make your life as enjoyable as possible. That would be pretty sweet. I can't, I can't say that that wouldn't be sweet, right? <laughs> okay, now imagine being the heir of the person who created the universe, including every single billionaire who walked on the planet, and being promised not just a fortune, but being promised that he will bestow on you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you're placing your faith in Christ, you are the heir of such a promise. Guys, this is no empty promise. It's one that we can expect God to fulfill. Just as God was faithful to bring every 
uh, all those Israelites that returned in the exile uh, from, from Babylon back to Judah, as he was faithful to bring the heirs of his promise back to his promised land, he is going to be faithful to bring every heir in Christ into his eternal, weighty glory that is beyond all compare. So take heart. God is surely going to bring you home to enjoy his glory forever. We're not home yet. We are, as Peter described us, exiles. We are not in our home. We haven't visited our homeland yet. That is with God in heaven. That is, that is far better than a, a land flowing with milk and honey. We are heirs. Guys, we, we, if, we, if we get this, we will become joyful people. We are heirs of an incredible set of promises, all that come through Christ. We have eternal life. We have communion with God. We have forgiveness of sins. We're going to have joy. We're going to be sin-free. We're going to be trouble-free. We're going to stop disappointing other people in heaven. We're going to stop being disappointed by other people in heaven. We're going to wake up happy every day instead of grumpy. (laughs) We, We are going to have boundless joy. That is the promise that God has given everyone who has expressed faith in Christ. That are the prom- those are the promises that we are heirs of through Christ. We could stop there. But there's still more. We're heirs, just like the Israelites were heirs, of a good promise. But aside, another key feature, aside from the Israelites being listed according to their ancestry, right, the heirs of a promise, there's another key feature that we should take notice of. And that is that the list gives, the list here in, uh, of the returned exiles, it gives specific attention to the Israelite officers of worship. Okay, verses 36 through 58. It's a lot of verses. That's, I'm going to do math up here. Dan, Dan has made me afraid to do that now. <laughs> that is 23 verses. There we go. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. That's a lot. That, 23 verses in Scripture just devoted to the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, and Solomon's servants. God decided it was important to have 23 verses in Scripture devoted to such people. Well, why? Well, each of these groups had a specific roles to fill in the facilitation, in the celebration, and in the protection of the worship of Yahweh. The priests offered up uh, uh, people's sacrifices as a, as, a, as, as a picture of atonement for sin and, and communion with God. They also taught the people of God the law. That's what the priests did. Uh, the Levites, the temple servants, Solomon's servants, these tended to, to various temple duties. They were handling the sacred objects of worship, and they were keeping the temple clean, which was more than just you know, janitorial business. This was about uh, holding high the purity and sanctity of God. The singers... This is the easiest one to figure out. (laughs) They led God's people in corporate praise and laments and confessions that we find in all the Psalms. The gatekeepers, what did they do? Well, they ensured that nothing unclean entered the temple and thereby protected the purity and the sanctity of the temple because that is where God's very presence dwelt. God who cannot see evil or, or look on evil without it just disintegrating. So that was their job. So why is special attention given to such roles, and what is significant about that? Well, it shows that the center of Israel's identity was the worship of Yahweh. This return to Judah, it would be incomplete 
without those called to be ministers in his temple. Later, I believe it's when Nehemiah uh, returns to, um, to Judah in, in, a, in, a, in a later uh, um, return, re- returning camp. Um, they realize that among their crew, they don't have any Levites. And so they say, we got to find some Levites. We have to have people who can help us commune with God. These are the people, by God's design, that uh, would make God accessible to the people. They were the only ones permitted to, to be in the temple, to handle the holy things, uh, which, which then made access to God possible. And without them, Israel could not approach God in his temple. They would be unable to commune with him. But God ensures that these priests return to Judah. Why? Why is that important? Because Israel wasn't supposed to just live in Judah. They were supposed to worship God there. That is why they were being brought back. So what does that mean for us? Well, like the Israelites, a fundamental part of our identity as God's people is that we are worshipers of God. It's not an optional part or secondary part of the Christian life. It's at the very core of it. There's a reason we start in our mission statement with worship God. That's where we start. We worship God. The Westminster Catechism got it right when they said that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Moreover, the the priestly occupation, it's no longer just limited to a select class of God's people, the Levites. Rather, Peter describes all believers in Jesus as a royal priesthood. That is, we all commune with God and make him known to one another. We are the singers lifting up our praises to God. We are the temple servants serving God's people and making access known. We're the priesthood offering to God our spiritual sacrifices. So let's live lives of worship to God. Let's praise him for the things that he gives us. Let's run to him uh, in dependence for daily strength. Let's set our hearts to make him our ultimate joy. God has designed us to glorify and enjoy him. And if we're not doing that, then we're not really living. If you're not putting your faith in Christ, then hear this as an invitation from God to you to experience unparalleled joy. All those promises we talked about are accessible to you through faith in Christ. You were made to bring God glory and to find amazing joy in doing so. You weren't made for yourself. You're made for Him. You weren't made to find joy on your own. You were made to find joy in God. If that sounds foreign and yet somehow appealing to you, I, I ask that you would you would talk uh, to me or to someone else you know and trust about this. I'm, I'm sure they, I certainly, would be happy to talk to you about this. If you're already a believer, then we need to remember God's call in our life to worship Him and to enjoy Him. The fact that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever is a very good end of man. <laughs> That is a very good purpose to live for, to enjoy God, the fountain of all blessings, as we, as we sang about this morning, the source of all joy, to make Him our delight. That's the reason God made us. He didn't have to make us. He made us so that we could delight in Him. Guys, that is a good privilege. So let's live for that. We've seen that God preserves and rescues His chosen people And we've seen how worship is a key tenet of the people of God, but there's one more feature that we need to know about the returned exiles here. 
And that's that some Israelites couldn't prove their ancestry, which verse 59 <clears throat> records. That might seem incidental. Okay, they couldn't prove their ancestry. That's a random detail. Why is this included in Scripture? Well, let's read it, and then we'll hopefully see why. Verse 59 says, The following were those who came up from Telmila, Telharsha, Kerab, Adon, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descents, whether they belonged to Israel. So apparently there were people living in Babylon who believed themselves to be Israelites. Um, but in the course of time, um, living, living in, in Babylon for several decades, they were uh, unable to, to prove it through the genealogical records. Um, even some of the priests couldn't locate themselves in this genealogy, which again was, was critical for them to be able to say, yes, look, I am actually a descendant of Levi, because if you weren't, you couldn't serve at the temple of God, which is why uh, a few verses later it talks about what do they do with these people who they think they're priests, but they can't prove it. Well, they say, well, we're going to bar you from serving the temple because we're not sure, and we need to protect God's holiness. So until we have a chance to, to consult God with a priest who's been verified, to consult and learn, yes, you're, you're, you're good, or no, we're not sure, um, so we're not going to have you do that. We're not going to have you serve in the temple. These exiles and even the priests had been in captivity long enough for them to start to lose their identity. The lines were blurring. But what happens to these people? Are they left in Babylon? No, you're not Israelite. We can't prove it. Just stay. We don't want you. Are they forgotten about? No. Guys, their names are still recorded in Holy Scripture for the rest of human history. <laughs> they return to the promised land, and God remembers all who are His. Even when the people of God start to forget who they are, God does not forget His own. On a personal level, this means that all those who are chosen by God for salvation, he will surely bring to glory. If you're like me, you may have days where you don't feel like a Christian at all. You, your heart seems cold toward God. You completely forgot that you're created for him. You're just living your life. You're, you're living for you. But for the believer, even when we forget God, he does not forget us. As the song, He Will Hold, Hold Me Fast, puts it, I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And indeed, He does. He does hold us fast. That provides great hope on a personal level. When we feel like the most faithless wretches on, on, in, in human history, and in all sense, we are. We're sinners. We're enemies of God, if not for his grace that has met us and transformed us. Even when we are doing nothing, we, we don't feel alive at all. If we are genuinely following Christ, if we have put our hope in him, God will not forget us. He will not discredit or discount us. He remembers us. He has our names written in another book, the book of life for all those who will come in perfect communion with him in heaven for eternity. So we can take hope on a personal level. But this also supplies us with hope on a corporate level. Our little church, this, Sovereign Grace Church, has been around for a little over two decades. And um, some of you may know that no, one, no person from the original church plant is a part of this church any point, or anymore. So we've got a brand new set of members, a brand new set of leadership. 
we have no ties to that previous, that previous generation that founded this church. It may be tough to get a clear sense of our identity as a church and to understand God's specific purposes for us. We may feel a little bit like the exiles who couldn't prove their ancestry. They had lost ties from past events of God's faithfulness, and now they're wondering, who are we? We may feel like that. But church, God has not forgotten us. He's not forgotten this church. He remembers this little body of believers, and he has specific purposes to use us here in Aurora. And just as the unconfirmed Israelites returned to worship God, we too, we can return in recommitment to the Lord as we strive to enjoy him and to make known the gospel around, uh, uh, to those around us. God remembers and rescues his people in order that they might worship him. He supplies their needs and brings him back to himself. To himself. And that brings us to our third and final event, which is worship resumed. This is the whole purpose of God providing for and rescuing his people, is that they might worship him. We've touched on this. And while in the case of the returned exiles, the worship will take several decades to really get fully underway. The, the temple hasn't been rebuilt. It says they go to the house of God, but it's basically a rubble heap at this point. It's an identifiable landmark. They know where it's supposed to be, but there isn't a temple there. However, they know this is where God's temple is to be. This is where God's presence, he has decided to make his presence known. So even though it's going to take decades for, for the altar to be built, for the foundation to be laid, for the temple to be built and fully furnished, the beginnings of worship start here. It begins here. Verses 68 and 69 of chapter 2 recount this. It says that some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord, <laughs> that's by faith, it's not really a house of the Lord yet, <laughs> but they know that's what's going to be there. When they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, they made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Having been supplied uh, with all that they needed from their Persian neighbors, and having arrived safely in Jerusalem, the people gave. They gave the resources for the building, the rebuilding of the house of the Lord. And this, 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 this giving was of no small amount. Um, I'd be surprised if you knew what a derrick was. I had to look it up. Uh, a derrick is like a, a, I can't really see, I have to look it up right now. A quarter of an ounce. I did the math earlier. Um, 61,000 derricks of gold. That's a roughly a half a ton of gold, uh, which is a bunch. Um, <laughs> at today's going rate for gold, that'd be worth about th $23 million. Okay, that's, that's a lot of money. If you consider that the entire assembly, it says uh, earlier that the, uh, the whole assembly was 42,360, then that means that, on average, if you have like families of, say, six-ish, uh, people gave a few thousand dollars worth when they arrived for the rebuilding of the temp temple. Now, remember, that's after they have made a huge journey. This wasn't like a day trip. <laughs> this was uh, a good portion of the year spent traveling from Babylon back to Judah. They probably burned through a lot of their savings or their resources, things they had gathered up, stored up, so that they could make this journey. They were at the end of that journey when they decided to give 
to the Lord's home. And it's before they actually do the work of resettling and rebuilding the homes that they're going to live in. So they've already spent some resources. They know they've got financial obligations in the future. And yet now the people, aware of the the provision that God has given, aware of the rescue that he has made, they respond with generosity. They prioritize the worship of Yahweh. We said earlier that God will provide all our needs and that's necessary, all that's necessary for life and godliness. And the reason he does that, okay, the reason he provides us things is so that, he might wor- so that we might worship him with what he supplies. So let's be like those Israelites. Let's, let's be aware of God's daily provision for our needs and, and of his rescue from our sin. And aware of this, let's respond with generous lives of worship to God. We can be generous with our money. We can be generous with our time. We can be generous with our words. We can be generous with our thought life to the one who supplies our needs in all of these categories. Let's live out Paul's command in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And God is committed. He's committed to this, His glory, which is a good thing for us because then that means He's committed to our joy, for we find joy in glorifying Him. He's so committed that He's going to rescue His people from the most impossible situations, and He's going to provide for every single one of their needs, everything they need for life and godliness. So as we seek to live lives of worship to God, let's wholly trust Him to provide all that we need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for recounting to us your faithfulness to your people, reminding us that you remember your people, that you care for your people, that you provide for your people, and that you have a purpose for your people, and that is to bring you glory and to find great joy in doing so. Lord, I pray that 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 perspective would shape shape our hearts, Lord, shape our our outlook on our week, Lord, as we we move forward now. uh, being the recipients of, of an even greater rescue through Jesus Christ and of daily provision that enables us to worship you. So Lord, make our lives uh, full of worship. Make, make us uh, those who find joy in you. And we ask you to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen.